Welcome to Politics 101 with David Orr, a Good Government Illinois podcast production. And we have a new year and a new podcast episode. Uh, I know I'm personally very excited to hear from our uh, speakers today. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, A little bit about Good Government Illinois before we jump right in. Good Government Illinois is committed to protecting democracy, eliminating voter suppression, promoting pro- equity, anti-racist government practices, expanding government efficiencies, rooting out corruption, strengthening ethics reforms, electing strong progressives in state and local government. Above all, accountability, ethics, and transparency, and these are running themes throughout our Good Government Illinois podcast series and also going to be featured heavily in today's episode. Our speakers today are David Orr, who is a leading reformer who served as Cook County Clerk from 1990 to 2018. Prior to that, he was an independent alderman and vice mayor under Mayor Harold Washington, and very briefly, he was also mayor. He founded Good Government Illinois to promote transparent and equitable government following his retirement from Cook County government. We also have, as one of our special hosts today, we have Alisa uh, Kaplan, who is the executive director of Reform for Illinois, a nonpartisan organization that works for a more inclusive and responsive Illinois government. She leads Reform for Illinois' advocacy and research initi- initiatives in areas like campaign finance, ethics, and election. Our main guest for today, we have the Honorable Lori Lightfoot, who is our 56th mayor of Chicago. She served from 2019, and we're so happy to have... Um, everyone here today and without further ado let's jump right into the discussion and David I will turn it over to you. Okay then Mayor let me start Um, very grateful that you could be here and spend some time with us but uh, let's just bring us up to date on what you're up to now what are you doing professionally? Uh, A lot of uh, different balls in the in the air but you know I want to make sure that I continue to have uh, impact um, and continue some of the work that we started uh, during my uh, uh, administration, particularly in areas of the city, southwest side, northwest side, um, southeast side, that have been historically underinvested. In my mind, one of the keys to uh, doing that work is really um, empowering some of the community-based, homegrown uh, organizations. So one of the things that I'm working on is um, through an entity that I've created with some of my uh, former colleagues from the mayor's office. We've created um, a not-for-profit called Chicago Vibrant Neighborhoods Collective. And our goal is to provide support to community-based organizations, small and medium-sized, for all their back office functions. So budgeting and finance, data, data analytics, HR, um, uh, board development, succession planning, marketing, um, how to write uh, good grants and provide all that support. We got a great um, starter grant from MacArthur. Uh, we've also been supported by the Pritzker Pucker uh, Foundation. So we'll make a, a formal announcement uh, soon at the City Club, but I'm very excited 
about this opportunity because it's a way for us, we know how vitally important these community-based organizations are to really the health and vitality of neighborhoods. So I'm looking forward to continuing to support that work. And then, you know, as I've uh, said to uh, my wife many times, I'm trying to avoid uh, being the uh, the person at the buffet that adds too many things on their plate. But I've always been a person who's like a jack of all trades, very interested in a lot of different things, um, working on a book um, and then uh, working on uh, doing some other economic things to help support um, uh, small businesses um, in Chicago. And then, you know, I've got to earn a living here as well. So um, I expect to be making an announcement about that in the short term. Sounds great. So now let's turn to um, some interesting things. Okay. Um, we can have time. We're going to talk about oh, the conviction of Ed Burke a little bit because we, we're really concerned about um, what can Chicago do about its reputation that too often is focuses on the uh, corruption and a uh, number of elected officials go to jail, et cetera. So we want to talk about where we are on that and kind of what you've done in that area, some very significant things, what still needs to be done. And then our remaining time, I do want to talk about housing a little bit. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So let's start out. Uh, if you want to say official question number one is, okay, so Ed Burke um, has been convicted. There are some people that think this is a uh, way, way late, but the fact is he has been convicted. We don't know what sentence he'll get, et cetera. Uh, but as someone is, who worked with him uh, in the city council and perhaps even before, um, what, what is your take on all that? Because it's going to lead us into the question of uh, honesty uh, among elected officials in Chicago and what can be done about it. Well, I, I think there's so many interesting takeaways from uh, the Ed Burke uh, story his conviction is not a surprise to me, given that uh, the vast majority of the government's case was based upon um, tapes, um, uh, surreptitious uh, ease, uh, eavesdropping that was approved by the court. So he really kind of dug his own grave and jumped into it, um, so to speak. So it's not surprising to me that he was con convicted and that the jury saw right through the um, smokescreen that his defense attorneys uh, tried to con tried to construct. And to be clear, he had some of the best defense attorneys um, in Chicago, and he had three different attorneys from three different firms. Um, so he didn't clearly spare any expense on trying to <clears throat> exonerate himself. But the evidence was powerful and strong because it came right out of his mouth about the ways in which he was trying to monetize his position as the chairman of the finance committee uh, in a clout that he had accumulated after decades and decades of being an operator um, in machine politics in Chicago. But I think there's, there's so many other interesting storylines and let me hit upon a couple of them. Um, <clears throat> several years ago when the government uh, finally disclosed um, what we all knew by then, that Danny Solis had been, um, in essence, a mole, a surreptitiously uh, recording conversations with a number of different people, including uh, Ed Burke. And the government disclosed his cooperation and gave him a deal where he will never spend a cent a, a, a day in jail, which to me is a, a total travesty. Um, and that he will continue to earn his taxpayer funded pension, which is another travesty um, given um, the obvious corruption uh, that he was involved in. When that story broke, I thought, 
aha, this will be an opportunity for us um, to make some additional reforms on top of what we'd already done um, with um, automatic prerogative in particular and specifically focus on economic development and zoning because that's really the next big frontier. If you're a person operating a business in the city, you're a developer, you want to do affordable housing, you still unfortunately have to kiss the ring of the aldermen because they can put a stop and work through the zoning committee um, and other committees to make sure that your project never sees the light of day. That's a terrible thing. Obviously, aldermen should have an, um, be able to offer their opinion. They should be able to rally community support or opposition. But to have that unilateral veto right is anti-democratic and I think is a huge problem. And David, as you know, has been one of the things that has led to many aldermen over the year abusing their power and ending up in the crosshairs of the FBI um, and convictions. So I thought this news comes out about Danny Solis, we have our moment. Oh no, if you look back at the time, I made some public statements that it shouldn't depend upon the integrity of the person who is the zoning board chair. There should be safeguards built in to make sure that the corruption cannot see the light of day. The current, um, then current uh, zoning board chair, <clears throat> um, Tom Tunney said, oh no, no, we're good. We don't need any changes. Everything is fine. And then that a chorus of other aldermen uh, followed suit, which meant it was going to be a big uphill climb to try to make the changes that were necessary. And then fast forward to immediately after um, his uh, conviction, some of those same aldermen, Tunney, Sawyer, Brookins, um, others who frankly should know better and I thought had more integrity, came out and said, oh, this is a tragedy that Ed Burke, who did so much good, is now um, a convicted felon. Well, you show me where the, the good was. Um, having control over the workers' compensation program that was a $100 million a year program into which there was zero transparency, when we took over and put that uh, program uh, in the hands of professionals, we noticed that literally tens of millions of dollars had been squandered with people being off the job for a decade or more without their workers' compensation uh, claims being resolved. The fact that it was well known that when somebody moneyed, um, a business person appeared before the finance committee, he wouldn't let them leave the room without giving them his business card and saying, you should call us to do your property tax work. I mean, the list is long about Ed Burke's crimes, about his breach of fiduciary responsibilities. And the, the, the response of his colleagues makes me wonder, did we learn anything? Did we make any progress? I'm really, really um, hard pressed to see what where we have made the progress that is so desperately needed. Well, well I'm hoping that some of this progress, and I have a couple of comments on, on uh, really into Ed Burke that you just said, and then we'll turn it over to Elisa, uh, who is an expert on a lot of different kind of reforms. So um, it's interesting, you know, when you made the reference to Solis too, that uh, many of us who believe Ed Burke has been doing this, you know, since the day he got on the city council, partly because of things like all that prerogative, this notion he was so confident. Okay, so confident. All sorts of shows about people wearing wires and all. He's so confident. He's go ahead with that anyway. And so petty. It is going to bother a fast food restaurant. Just 
anyway, it, it, it drives you nuts, particularly when you made reference to some of those aldermen and particularly a story by a particular reporter that I just totally shocked by. Basically, it was yeah. what you just said, that yeah. this guy has done so much and he's helped me. I went, what in what world do you live in? And only one person, someone you were closely with, Michelle Smith, was given a little time, maybe one line at the end of that article. Yeah. So part of our part of our challenge here is not just aldermen, many good ones, many not so good ones, but it's also the media and how they look at it and yeah. how, how we need their help to move ahead. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned workman's comp because I've known that's been a cesspool forever and people are giving me hints and leads. And so I'm glad you brought that in. So anyway, let's, um, one quick story and then I'm turning it over for uh, Lisa. Uh, happened to Ed Burke. I love this one, you may have heard it, but uh, so one of my students way back when I was teaching college at Mundelein College that then became Loyola University, uh, an older student, um, she worked uh, for one of the major airlines out at the airport. I visited her on the way on a flight one, one time and I saw this Ed Burke letterhead on her desk. And I said, well, what's, what's all this about? And she says, it's resumes from Ed Burke. And I said, <laughs> what do you do with them? And she said, what do you think we do with him? He's chairman of the finance committee. Um, and, you know, this level of, as you said, a wonderful phrase there, I hadn't heard it before, monetize his position. Okay. And that's what I think much of the corruption is about, monetizing his position. Mm -hmm. But we could go on forever on that. But Elisa, go ahead. Jump in, please. Well, if I can just jump in before, Elisa, you ask your sure. question. Look, I mean, the, the story, you know, the, the government, I thought, told a very interesting story about his corruption. And they did it in what they called four kind of chapters, four episodes, one of them being this field museum. Well, the woman who testified that she had to deal with Ed Burke's wrath uh, because she dared not follow up on his desire uh, to get a former um, alderman's, um, I think, daughter or something, a, an internship. That was it in a nutshell. I mean, he was a person who always looked at the chessboard and figured out which pieces he could move around. And But he made it clear that if you crossed him, there was going to be consequences. And people knew that. So there wasn't a lot he had to say after a certain point. 40 years in office, never been taken down. No mayor wanted to challenge him, not Daly, not um, Rahm. He, he wielded almost unchecked power that was on par um, with um, the most powerful elected officials in our state. And he did it without anybody ever questioning him about the use of its power. You mentioned the difficulties you had in addressing aldermanic prerogative and some of the worst abuses there, but you also got some significant accomplishments done um, while you were in office, especially at the beginning of your term. Can you talk to us a little about what you were proudest of and then um, what you think remains to be done and how are we actually going to get these things done given the culture that you're talking about and given the tepid response you've gotten from from some council members on reform. Well, well I'm very proud of the uh, executive order that I signed on the first day of my uh, tenure on um, eliminating um, aldermanic prerogative uh, in terms of executive branch decision making. Um, I will tell you that so many um, mid-level junior people felt like this was a yoke lifted off of them. Um, and it was really clear that not only did I need to sign a piece of paper and, and make this declaration, I needed to convince those same people 
that if they push back um, against uh, intrusive automatic interference in their work, that I was going to have their back. That was a key, key uh, part of the work. Um, we also gave um, the Inspector General's office power that it had sought, but been denied. Um, and in particular over um, city council committees, um, city council staff, um, that was unprecedented. And I was very, very proud um, of that work. Um, we made sure that um, you know uh, we did things around procurement to make it more transparent, um, but also again, to make sure that the contracts were let, bids were put out, RFPs came out in a way that was honest and fair and that was unheard of um, previously. So we did a lot of things um, to make government really work for ordinary people and to continue with my view, which is things of, the na of that nature, particularly in terms of business transactions, had to be done on the basis of merit and not but what more needs to be done. The list is long. You know, <clears throat> I alluded to this earlier. The zoning committee, to me, <clears throat> is the next frontier. Uh, the fact that so many aldermen, even the ones that describe themselves as democratic socialists or uh, people who, you know, are progressives, they will not give up that power. And so I think figuring out a way to strike the right balance, and maybe you've got to do it incrementally, but it still, it cannot be in now 2024 that if you want to do the basics, oh, I, I neglected to mention sign reform. And if you'll indulge me, let me uh, tell you a little bit about that. When I was campaigning for the first time, I kept hearing from small businesses, it's taken us a year, it's taken us two years to get a sign for our business. I thought, well, that can't be right. That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, they were right because of aldermanic prerogative. If you wanted to get a sign saying Lori's sub shot, the hoops that you had to jump through, the length of time that it took, the way in which an alderman could absolutely delay that basic thing from happening, we changed that. And when you got a business license, you were automatically given your initial sign for your business. That was a huge reform for small businesses because they couldn't operate effectively without signage. We done is more, more reform there. The zoning committee, as I said, economic development in the city shouldn't be determined on, on the basis of the whims of who carries favor the most with the local alderman as it was before. Because what that has meant is no economic development of any significant time kind other than fast food franchises um, south of Roosevelt Road or west of Ashland that's hurt our city, that's held people back. We're not putting enough good paying jobs in those neighborhoods when we let an archaic, unfair, undemocratic system um, control who gets to do what, when, where, and how based upon automatic, automatic prerogative. What, what I find so valuable about this, Mayor, um, is it's, it's real experience, okay? You, you live through it, you know so much about it. The challenge, I think, for all of us, uh, including the work that Lisa does and, and others, is we have to show the taxpayers, the citizens, exactly how this works and why it hurts them. That's mm -hmm. what I really appreciate, how it hurts them. You know, one example, um, we're touching housing later, but when we talk about automatic prerogative. This notion that individual aldermen can block 
Um, you could use the word subsidized housing, but the bottom line is they've been able to block for decades affordable housing. In fact, not only did they able to block it, but because of doing that, they got themselves in federal trouble and millions and millions of dollars that would have gone to housing, okay, didn't come in there because yes. old man Daly was, he was promised you can block whatever you want for race reasons and all sorts of other bad reasons. But so, so much of this, and even aldermen that I had formal respect for, all of a sudden, every little business person with a little driveway permit, all of a sudden, they got to cough up 2,500 bucks um, in order to get these little things. This is what, again, there's plenty of good aldermen. Uh, there's plenty of people that don't misuse that, quote, automatic prerogative. But the point is, as long as so many do, something has to be done. Like I say, give them, you know, we want to hear from them, but we don't need this constant ripping off of so many small businesses uh, and others. In fact, some pretty biggest business as we've seen with, with yeah. Burke. Well, David, along the, the lines that you um, just spoke about, about affor affordable housing, if I may, let me share, a, I think, a really telling anecdote. And it was one of the few um, times where we were able to um, override um, an alderman's objection regarding affordable housing. Um, you know that O'Hare International Airport is a huge economic engine, not just for the city of Chicago, but for the entire region. And the workers that were there that, you know, hung in through the pandemic and were getting on their feet, um, they still had significant challenges. And one of them was transportation to the airport. So there was a proposal uh, to put uh, housing much closer to the airport. Um, it's right at the exit off of the expressway. Um, it happened to be in uh, Napolitano's award. Um, this would be um, uh, several hundred units of affordable housing. Um, and, uh, and it was gonna be built on essentially a, a vacant lot uh, facing Park Ridge. Um, and the details of this are, are important. Um, this was something that was started and, and went nowhere before I became mayor. The developer came back again, tried, and Napolitano was absolutely opposed to it. So I, I, I said to Anthony, help me understand what your objection is. Well, you know, we've already got um, vacancies in apartment buildings in my ward. Um, and I said, well, what's the vacancy? Uh, what's the occupancy rate? Well, 95%. I said, well, 95% is industry standard. No one goes above 95%. You're doing pretty good if you've got 95%. Well, they're very concerned about the density. And I thought, well, okay. Um, I said, well, I, why don't I come out and take a look at the uh, site and, and walk it with you and you can, you know, give me more details about why this is a problem. Oh, well, I'm not available. Well, what about another date? Nope, not available then. Uh, well, what about your staff person who's handling this for you? Nope, can't meet you, sorry. And I thought, okay, I, I, I was not born yesterday. Something about this smells fishy. So I went out there myself on a Saturday. And I will tell you, I spent about 30 seconds out there. This was a vacant parking lot behind, there's a little um, hotel um, right as you're about to exit to go into uh, the O'Hare property. Um, I think it's an old Holiday Inn or something along that line, but there's nothing there. There's another big high rise right next to it. It faces Park Ridge. And I thought really the people in your ward are upset that there's gonna to be too much density in Park Ridge. Who cares what Park Ridge folks think? No no offense, it, this wasn't about density. 
This wasn't about, you know, anything else. It was clear and plain and simple that he did not want to support a project that was going to be for working class, God forbid, people of color coming into his neighborhood. And so we work with organized labor. We work with some of the progressives on city council and we overrode his objection because it was the right thing to do. This is gonna provide great housing opportunities uh, for workers at O'Hare that desperately need it so they don't have a two hour commute one way to get to good paying jobs. But that was rare, very, very rare that that happened. And it took a huge amount of effort, took my personal involvement to get that deal done. You've mentioned the difficulties of getting some of these things passed. And we hear often that aldermanic prerogative is more of a tradition than it is written in any rule book right. anywhere. And we hear a lot, we certainly hear in the political reform world that Chicago has this exceptional culture uh, that we can't do the good government things that they've done in New York or LA because we have this, you know, vestiges of the machine system and um, we're never going to get any of this done. I, I think we've shown in Chicago that that's not true, that we can make progress, but obviously we're not making fast enough progress. So what do you think, how do you change a political culture? You know, how are you going to persuade uh, council members that they need to act differently on aldermanic prerogative and on some of these other issues? What's our path forward for reform? Well, I think there's got to be a groundswell of outside pressure uh, for change. And it can't be generalized. It's got to be very specific. So, for example, on my way um, out the door, I signed a, an executive order uh, to make part of uh, the zoning uh, committee process more transparent. And the minute I left office, the new Z zoning committee chair, Carlos um, Ramirez Rosa, um, put a kibosh on it, even though it's an executive order, um, and, and would not allow the Department of Planning to enforce it. The, the order directed the zoning board uh, administrator, who meets with the zoning committee chair, before every zoning meeting to go over the agenda and the zoning board administrator gives his recommendation to the chair about the various projects um, that are on the agenda. The executive order said, we'll publish those recommendations, put up a little microsite on the department of planning, let the public see what your recommendations are, and then they can compare and contrast whether or not those recommendations were actually followed by the zoning board chair. And my understanding is that Carlos uh, Ramirez Rosa said, nope, don't want any of that. And as the mayor's floor leader, once again, he was given deference. There's been no effort made whatsoever uh, to implement any part of that um, executive order. Why not? So it's, it's those kinds of things that people need to rally behind and demand accountability um, to make sure that processes are transparent, that we're governing as a democracy in the sunshine, uh, in the daylight, and not behind closed doors where nobody can see anything. The public isn't educated um, until the last minute when it's almost too late. And then, like anything in the box of me, if you see that elected officials aren't doing what needs to be done to support democratic reforms, you got to hold them accountable. You got to get out and you got to vote. 
the last municipal election, shamefully, we only had a turnout of barely over 30%. And, and I, I can't help but imagine that people think, well, my vote doesn't matter. And of course, we know every single vote matters. <clears throat> but if you don't vote, then you're giving way to the status quo and to people who are moneyed and clouded, who um, who are always going to be watchful and out there making sure that they get their piece of the pie. So it's it's coming up with a specific set of, of reform items and driving them home consistently. I was a broken record through my first campaign about getting rid of automatic prerogative. It made a difference. I am 100% confident of that. A similar effort has to be made, I think, in the next big frontier, uh, which is economic development and zoning. You mentioned um, the last mayoral race, and that's a, a great segue into my next question, uh, which is about money and politics and the, the price of our elections and how they're funded. The last mayoral race, the, the second round, uh, featured one candidate who got a large part of his money from unions, especially teachers unions, um, and one candidate who got much of his money from a handful of wealthy individuals, mostly in the finance sector. Um, there was a golf course developer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your own experience fundraising and whether you're concerned about mayors or council members coming into office, possibly indebted to a small group of interests or individuals and what you think could be done about that? Well, I think you ask a, uh, a very interesting, important, but complex question. The, the money is important in the current system because the money is what funds um, TV ads. It's what funds um, you know, a ground game. Um, but I think if there was much more opportunity to communicate directly to voters and effectively, it would make the money less important. Um, you know, the, we were barraged as we always are with television ads. And we're in uh, 2024 as the presidential uh, campaign is about to really kind of kick into high gear. We're gonna um, experience a time not so, not so um, in the not so distant future where it's gonna be nothing but wall-to-wall -wall TV commercials where you can't escape them. And that is because elected officials, pr prospective um, candidates um, want to be able to communicate effectively with the voters. And it's really difficult to do. Um, I think probably more difficult now than ever before because of the fractured nature of the media landscape not just here in cities like Chicago, but really across the country. Um, you've seen a huge consolidation of media properties. Um, you've seen really seri uh, serious and experienced reporters um, be forced to uh, take buyouts um, or simply laid off. Um, and also it's in an environment where social media really dominates and Anybody with a keyboard thinks that they're a journalist. Um, the level of disinformation um, that's out there is profound. So the money is intended in most part to counterbalance this broken, I would say communications landscape. I'm not so sure that it works, um, but we, we, if we talk about the, the corrupting influence of money in politics, we also have to think about how we account for 
um, and fix the ways in which um, candidates are um, can communicate uh, directly with the voters without being beholden to these moneyed influences. You can't have one without the other, in my view. It's become clear that politicians need money to get their message out. What we've been concerned about, and one of the things that you've alluded to, is that the the distribution of the money is the problem, right? Is it coming from who is it coming from? Is it coming from only a small handful of people or or interests? Um, in the past, you've supported public campaign financing, and many of our peer cities—New York, LA, San Francisco. DC um, have enacted programs like that. Is something is that something that you still support? Yeah, I really think it's time for uh, that to come not only to the city of Chicago but to the the state of Illinois. Uh, it, we can't have a democracy that is fair to all, where only the moneyed interest, only the self financing interests, um, can really realistically participate you're going to see voter participation continue to go down uh, to historic lows uh, if we don't counterbalance that system. Um, and there's a lot of interesting experiments across the country, whether it's New York, whether it's San Francisco, uh, whether it's uh, Seattle, uh, Portland, where um, there has been a much more democratization of financing of uh, municipal races in particular, but also statewide races. Um, and I think it's more than past time uh, for the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, um, to really be thinking about um, some of those models. But you've got to um, make sure that you've got the votes to be able to make that happen. Um, the game right now um, is rigged. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And when you're a candidate, um, as I was twice, where you've got to work within that system, it's hard. Um, it's definitely hard. And you end up spending, you know, 75, 80% of your time as a candidate on the phone begging people uh, for dollars. That's not a that's not a uh, a good use of uh, time. You'd rather be out there directly connecting with the voters, um, talking about your record, um, advocating for new policies, engaging, hearing from folks. There's no time to do that when you're spending 75, 80%, maybe even more, depending on the circumstances, um, on the phone, on call time. So things have become, I think, really dramatically uh, skewed. Um, the influence of certain moneyed interests, I think, is is out of whack. Um, and I know there are some who would say, yeah, I'd like to not write those you know, six and seven figure checks um, to help support candidate X, Y, or Z. I'd rather do something else with those dollars. Um, and we, as you, as you said, we know that there are other models out there that actually work. Let me ask a specific question uh, on the campaign finance reform, a little different one that is being proposed and being talked about. Uh, and I know we're, we're running a little long here, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of it. Um, Part of the campaign finance thing, particularly because uh, back to dealing with uh, uh, Chicago corruption and so forth, was to put a limit on how much money that those businesses who do business with government can give to elected officials. And that, um, even though it's changed over the years, that, that amount, both for Chicago as well as Cook County, right now is $1,500. That was legislation that, that I pushed and Harold Washington uh, rammed it through way back in 1986 and 87. 
Um, but now we've seen, because many of the things that are passed that are good, there's often, there's workarounds. And, uh, yes. Politicians are very good at finding workarounds to destroy it. So even though you've got that 1500, what's happened since now is a different interpretation, of course, what we intended. And that is, okay, well, the business gives 1500 to Alderman X, but also the president of the firm gives this, and this person gives this, and the wife gives this, et cetera. Um, and that's one of the things that is being discussed right now, I believe, uh, in, in a board of ethics. And some aldermen are looking at it. Some aldermen are looking to try to lower the amount or to uh, eliminate the amount that if you do business with Chicago, you cannot give money. We do know it's legal to at least limit it. Um, that's just I want to throw it out because that's one of many things that people are proposing uh, as this podcast becomes public uh, Thursday. Uh, there's a hearing before um um, Matt's ethics committee in the city of Chicago on a number of provisions that board of ethics and actually under your leadership, the board of ethics was pretty active in, in the city of Chicago um, and more so than in the, in the County of Cook. So any thoughts on that, that very specific kind of um, workaround on contractors? Yeah, I actually think that the problem with the contract contractors isn't really the biggest issue. <clears throat> the the issue is you can get around and and raise all kinds of other money when a, a candidate puts two hundred thousand uh, dollars uh, into the race. It's called busting the caps, and then you can take an unlimited amount of money from any source. That's really I think the biggest problem. Um, yes, of course you want to make sure that there's no quid pro quo that um, you're not. Uh, contractors aren't getting are feeling compelled to give money um, because or unions, frankly, uh, to give money because um, if they don't, then they're um, out of favor with an incumbent or so forth. But if you really want to get at, I think the biggest challenge right now is the busting of the caps allows um, candidates to take any amount of money uh, that they want from um, whomever. Um, you can take, you know, a million dollars from uh, the venture capital folks that uh, funded one of the candidates in the mayoral race. You can take, um, you know, a million dollars from Union XYZ uh, local. That is, to me, the biggest problem. And because I think most people understand that they really can't um, milk the cow of government contractors, so to speak. Um, but the busting of the caps to me is the biggest problem that has to be accounted for. And, it, and with these reforms, you've got to make sure um, that you're thinking about all the unintended consequences because you want to make the playing field level. You don't want it to overly favor whether it's an incumbent um, or a challenger. You want it to be an even playing field. Um, and so these proposals have to be really, really well thought out and, and you've got to game them out. So you see, all right, if we do this, what are going to be the actual consequences here and then make the tweaks where necessary? It'll be interesting to see with the dynamics in this particular city council, um, whether there's an appetite for actually being progressive when it comes to um, campaign finance reform. I'm dubious. Um, but I'll be watching with great interest. 
Well, we can be hopeful. Uh, I'm, I've already taken more time than we had planned on this, this section, but uh, I know uh, Elisa and I could go on for a long time on that too. Let me just jump over quickly before we let you go. Um, like I mentioned the affordable housing, and we've talked about it a little bit indirectly, um, but I want to know specifically on um, the plans that you have, okay, uh, where you put a certain amount of money away whether it's from TIF or other sources. Um, and that money was to be used to build affordable housing around the city. And so the, the question is, tell us about that and to what extent this is part of South, South and Southwest um, or is this above and beyond that? So we, in December of uh, 22, we announced a $1 billion commitment to affordable housing. The biggest commitment um, that the city of Chicago has ever made. And it was just a, a combination of funds from a variety of sources, um, tax credits, um, TIF, um, and other sources. And really, it was it was aligned with Invest Southwest, but it was different than Invest Southwest because where these proposals, if they're built, um, will make a huge difference in taking the first big bites out of the segregation that separates us uh, for way too long. These um, developments will actually be built, not in the poorest areas of our city, but in middle-class um, areas of our city, middle-class, upper-middle-class areas. So we see economic diversity in housing as a critical part of breaking down barriers between residents, making sure that there's mixed-use uh, properties in all over our city, and not just in the poorest neighborhoods. So the thing that I'm most proud of, and I hope that these projects will come to fruition, is if they, we do, if they do, we're gonna reverse the clock on segregation that has been a stain on our city for way too long. And what's it gonna take, you know, like I say, you started putting money away. Um, do you, and I know we're not touching really much on, on um, Mayor Johnson's administration, but do you have any sense of what they have to do to bring this to fruition? Well, they got to stay the course. Um, they got to make sure that uh, the the resources that were put together um, to and the commitments that were made um, to these various development teams, because it wasn't just that we announced a $1 billion commitment. There were teams of people that won uh, these, these development projects um, and they're going to need help, right? In December, since December of, of 22, uh, inflation has made everything much more expensive, construction in particular. Um, it's going to be necessary um, to, in some instances, to find additional funding. But as long as that commitment is there, um, working with the developers, we're going to see these projects rise uh, vertically. Um, and it'll be a great thing for the city of Chicago. But you don't make an announcement and then magically something happens. You got to have a committed team inside of city government working uh, with the private sector teams uh, to really work arm in arm to make sure that these projects stay on track, that there's sufficient funding, that you deal with any uh, roadblocks that happen. And invariably that always happens. You may be building on a site where you find something that requires some additional work that you hadn't anticipated. That's just par for the course, uh, but you can't abandon ship. You got to stay the course uh, and make sure that these projects come to uh, fruition um, and that you fight against the nimbyism 
um, that sometimes happens. Um, there right. are many people who hear the word affordable, they think the worst possible thing. They think of the 1970s version of you know public housing. They think about Section 8, um, and that's just not the way things work um, in this day and age, but that those perceptions are powerful. And you've got to make sure that you're working hand in glove, um, developer and city government to overcome and educate and be transparent uh, with the local uh, residents so they understand entirely what's happening in their neighborhood, which is only right. Well, we'll be following up on this one because almost all major cities have enormous problems related to affordable housing. Uh, yes. And we, we know what how that should be tops on pretty much everyone's agenda. Uh, Alisa, final questions or comments? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. Well, if that's the case, um, I want to thank uh, Alisa Kaplan, Executive Director of Reform for Illinois. Um, and Alisa has a lot of other issues we could deal with if we had the time. <laughs> and then Mayor, um, again, very thankful for your time. We appreciate the fact that uh, uh, you're still working on things that are critical to help people in the city of Chicago. Uh, and hopefully we can bring you back again sometime and to see how we're, what progress we're making on some of these issues. So thank you. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to You know, we're just starting to begin uh, 2024. So there's a lot of work to do in 2024 and beyond on all of these issues. So definitely stay tuned for work that good government's doing, Reform for Illinois is doing, and Mayor Lightfoot in you know, sort of the next, the next phase of her work and advocacy here in Chicago. On that note, this concludes this episode of Good Government Illinois. My name is Jane, and I'm glad everyone could join us here to listen to this. Um, I will also like to remind you that you can find this episode and other episodes of the Good Government Illinois podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr, on rss.com, Spotify, and now we are also on Apple Podcasts. So please tune in for, you know, past episodes and any episodes that are coming up. So thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Until next time. Mm -hmm.